from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. In the Me Too era, so many creative people are being outed as jerks, bullies, predators, worse. And for journalists who cover arts and entertainment, it's a bit of a tightrope. How can you write about House of Cards or The Cosby Show ever again without the work feeling hopelessly tainted? Are they still great shows, even if their stars or creators clearly aren't great people? How do you investigate claims of harassment if nobody will talk and a star's publicist won't let you near the client? What excellent works were never made because of lousy men who got in the way? A few weeks ago, I was on a panel with journalists and critics to talk about some of these questions. It was called When Bad People Create Good Art, Writing About Culture in the Me Too Era. With me were Nikesa Moody, the global entertainment and style editor for the Associated Press. Me Too, this was the time when we finally had people who were coming out and some high-profile people were accused of sexual misconduct. Maureen Ryan, who was chief TV critic at Variety. I like to think about the creators who didn't get a chance, people who were in their path, who were harmed, you know, how they're doing. I mean, I think a lot about that. And A.O. Scott, one of the film critics for The New York Times, talking here about Harvey Weinstein. One of the ways, in retrospect, that he was able to scare people off the, the kinds of stories that ultimately came out that undid him was by going aggressively after people for much smaller things. So, like, if you, if you misreported the box office on one of his pictures. Our moderator that evening was Janice Simpson, Time Magazine's former culture editor and now director of arts and culture reporting at City University. Here is an excerpt of our conversation, starting with Jan asking A.O. Scott, known as Tony, about an article he recently wrote on Woody Allen. Tony, I'm going to start with you. You wrote a piece in January titled My Woody Allen Problem. It could have been a book. (laughs) And it talked about your longstanding fondness for Allen's films and your struggle to put that in perspective in light of his daughter's charges that he molested her when she was a child. Would you tell us where your thinking is about that now and where you are on Roman Polanski, who actually drugged and raped a 13-year-old and has continued to get good reviews and even a Best Director Oscar, and whose film Chinatown is still revered by many film critics as one of the best uh, movies of the latter part of the 20th century. Uh, The interesting thing about both of those cases is that they were known, um, although in the case of Alan and uh, Dylan Farrow, the, the facts were disputed, but they had been known for a very long time. Um, Roman Polanski fled the country in the late 70s rather than, than face a trial. Um, in a way, the reckoning that I was facing when I sat down to write this piece was not a sort of a bombshell that had just landed, not, not a case where, oh my God, you know, I can't believe this guy, but rather that I, and and hardly myself alone, I I would say in a kind of large professional sense, all of us had known about this or been aware of it and kept going, not um, dealt with it at all. So it was a kind of a belated sense, well, that maybe, you know, maybe it's time to look at this 
in a different light. Maybe the, the, the revelations about all of the, the men that you named and the many, many more that you didn't um, should not just have us think about on a case-by-case basis, you know, what, what we make of a particular artist or that particular artist's work, but whether there is some larger rethinking that, that has to take place. So I, I wrote that piece in a way to begin that process, not really knowing where I was going to go with it, except that I knew two things, which is that I could not accept or, or walk past um, the things that had been said about Alan. Um, the previous ways of um, thinking about these men's behavior and the behavior of other uh, male artists um, can no longer go on as it was. Um, whether that means that their status as artists, um, that they'll be demoted in a way, or whether there'll be a permanent kind of asterisk next to their names, or whether large numbers of people will decide that they, that they can't watch their films or don't want to watch their films, in a way is not really for me to say. But I do feel like we're, we're early in a process of rethinking how we think about in particular about male artists, about their reputations, about what they're not only permitted to do um, with respect to how they treat women, um, but in a way expected to do and celebrated for doing. The, the most troubling thing to me about this, the thing that I think demands to be thought about the most is is not just the, the possibility that these, you know, the, these guys were just sort of like, bad guys and outliers and anomalies, but that there's a structure by which the reputations of male artists are made that rests upon and condones and, and licenses and actually, I think, in some ways celebrates exactly this kind of behavior. That's the sort of the most troubling implication that I, I don't know where, where that's going to go personally go or as a culture. Yeah. Maureen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn to you because you've been really sort of ahead of the pack including commentary about issues of race and gender in your reviews. And I want to ask you, in a general sense, how much we should divorce the ethical from the aesthetic when we're reviewing. If you were making a list of the top sitcoms of all time, do you include The Cosby Show now? What's the title of your list? Is it sitcoms that had a major cultural impact? Yeah. You can't rewrite the past. I mean, the, it is what it is. I mean, I wrote a number of very positive reviews about the first few seasons of Louis, you know, Louis C.K.'s show. Like, I, that show, I think, also changed the game and, you know, broke a few molds. And I think that we are always re-encountering art. You know, a lot of critics have written recently about going back to view ER now that it's on Hulu. I love doing that. You know, some things don't sit well. There were aspects at the time of Friends that I didn't like, or if I went back and watched The Cosby Show, just in terms of the pure content of a t particular episode, I might not like it. It definitely had an impact. It's impossible for me to watch that show the same way anymore. But I think, you know, one thing I think is definitely true, there's no one-size-fits-all. I would never tell anyone else how to engage with a piece of art. Like, that's not what a critic is actually doing. We're just talking about things that we find interesting and whether we think that those themes or characters of interest are worth your time. And, you know, you might disagree with us, and that's fine. We are always going to have 
extra textual information in our head. And it depends. There's all these 360 degrees of gradation to how I feel about different creators and how I personally am engaging with their work, certainly in light of all these revelations. I mean, one thing I like to think about the creators who didn't get a chance because these difficult men, white men, did. I like to think about what the people who were in their path who were harmed, you know, how they're doing. I mean, I think a lot about that. But I also think that there are different degrees of involvement. And I think that one thing that we're exposing, or what many people have exposed, is that there is this system by which certain people get certain pathways, certain kinds of protection from consequences. And so it's those bigger systems that I think about a lot. So Nikessa, I'm going to ask you, how are you and your staff at AP dealing with this? Have you assigned reporters to the harassment beat? Are you instructing your reporters to ask different kinds of questions when they're doing celebrity profiles? How has this changed the game for you? This is such a major topic. Um, and even before the scandal, I wanted people to ask a little bit about this because Trump had become an office, had come in office and you started to hear actresses talk about what was happening to them. Then, of course, after the New Yorker and the New York Times um, great pieces, it became something where you couldn't not ask, especially like you might be interviewing someone who worked with Louis C.K., who worked with Bill Cosby, who worked with Harvey Weinstein, or these, some of these actresses. So it became something you had to ask. Okay, who else is there that, who hasn't come out? I mean, there was a time, maybe like maybe two months ago, when you might have three, four, five alerts a day from like, the Hollywood Reporter. <laughs> So-and-so has been accused. So-and-so has been accused. And you're like, okay, do this story. And then like, as you're doing this story, so-and-so has been accused. <laughs> So it was overwhelming at times. We have been investigated accusations and claims. The reporting of it has to be so thorough that there are times when we've had people who um, we've reported on and we've decided not to do anything because it just didn't meet that standard. What's that standard? The standard um, would be something that there's a certain level of abuse and harassment that has some type of um, verification that maybe there were letters, maybe there were um, emails, and that also that someone wants to go on the record. There are a lot. There are people who might make an accusation but not want to go on the record. So there's there's different standards with with that. Kurt, I'm going to ask you. I've saved this for you because you've interviewed a lot of famous people, both for print pieces and for Studio uh, 360. Should profiles and interviews now become semi-investigative pieces? Say you're doing a piece on the young actor Timothy Chalamet and his new movie that's coming out later this year. Uh, do you have one of your producers track down his ex-girlfriends to find out if he was not nice to women? Well, there are two different questions you're asking. One is, would we do that on the show that we do? And no, we wouldn't because that's not the sort of show we do. If he was on the show, uh, would I ask him about such a thing? Sure. The larger question that you began with, which was, should journal entertainment journalism, arts journalism be more investigative? I've always thought, when there's smoke, when there's something there, sure. I mean, one of the 
the bases for starting uh, helping to start Spy Magazine 30 years ago was essentially precisely that. There was a place for, and I wanted to read, and, and we thought people wanted to read stories about various kinds of powerful and famous people in the arts and media and otherwise, at the New York Times, say, who could be uh, written about in a less puffy, more in a tougher, frank way, and that's what that was all about. So, sure, I, I, I do. Th I think the tendency for arts journalism, cultural journalism, is to be uh, softer than it uh, needs to be. Which isn't to say that in every case, <laughs> every artist or every anything uh, should should get the third degree when one is doing journalism about them. But definitely, there's a place for it. I mean, if Casey Affleck were some somehow to be booked on Studio 360 next week. I can't imagine not talking to him about this subject. You know, was Harvey Weinstein ever on your show? He was not. I guess I know him, and I had various encounters with him over the years. And my first encounter was when he invited me to lunch when I'd just become editor of New York Magazine, and and began threatening me immediately before we'd even had small talk, talking about the dirt he was going to find on me. When that part of the Weinstein story that uh, Ronan Farrow uh, reported in the New Yorker came out, it all sounded very familiar to me. So, But he was never on my radio show. People talk about Harvey Weinstein as an open secret. And you've just talked about how he bullied you the first day he met you. Everybody in the business knew about these things. Why weren't we writing about them? That's a good question. I didn't know that. What I knew about Harvey Weinstein is someone like, I don't, I'm not in the film arena, I was much more in the TV and other things arena, but I knew that he was a blowhard bully of a, of a very familiar Hollywood type, right? The sort of bloviating yeller and screamer. Speaking like Maureen, I certainly, I don't know how much of an open secret it was. I mean, I don't think people were at parties saying, well, you know, he did this to Wills McGowan and did, I mean, I don't, those were never conversations that, that I were, was aware of. You know, I think, like she said, you kind of knew that he was this powerful, like a lot of powerful men, very, um, very strong and, and probably intimidating and could have his way. His bullying was very, was, was very systematic and in a way very effective. Both Ken Oletta at, at The New Yorker and, and my late colleague and, and friend David Carr had been trying to get the goods on, on Harvey Weinstein on a number of different things and were basically pushed off certain stories because of just how powerful was he and, and, and how scary he was and how he could get people um, not to talk. And I think one of the reasons that the stories came out when they did um, was that his power had waned. If you're talking about in, in the late 90s or early 2000s, when, um, when he was still with, with Miramax, when he was still you know the king of the Oscars, when anyone who wanted to do any kind of business in Hollywood, especially in the independent sector, had to go through him in some way, or was sure, much as they might have like hated him, and, and some of the women talked about this, they knew they were going to have to work with him again, or might have to work with him again, or that, that he might have approval on some project they wanted to do. I do think it's not unimportant to distinguish between, say, criminals and gross people which isn't to excuse the merely gross, but what Harvey Weinstein did is not the same as, for instance, even in the same realm, it seems to me, as what Aziz Ansari did. So 
yeah, we can talk about them all as being various kinds of misguided or miscreants or monsters or gross guys. I get how they're all in a category, but it seems to me, especially as journalists, as members of the reality-based community, it's important to distinguish between uh, various levels of misdeed. One thing that's been hard for me to grapple with is calling it sexual harassment. And I know that that term has currency and I know that it's useful, but I think it's much more about poisonous power dynamics. And I think that when you say, oh, well, he sexually harassed her, those are power displays. Those are displays of, here's what I can say to you, here's what I can do to your body, and you don't have any power in this situation. And I think that that is everywhere in the entertainment industry. And what I will also add to that is, people say, well, it's not just the entertainment industry like I just did, but it's encouraged in the entertainment industry. It's not just glossed over, but it's positively, the, the role model is like the, the libertine culture and you know the, the rebel and the rule breaker. You know, that is sort of enshrined in the lore. That's the mythology. There's a lot of problematic dynamics baked into how this particular art of TV and film is made. And people who are not at the very top, and even some of those who are perceived at the top are viewed as disposable. We can get more of you. We can get another PA. We don't need you. We can get another director or assistant director or writer. So the power dynamics are pulled on people in all manner of ways. And bullying and psychological cruelty on a massive scale. The women who have suffered this, this treatment talk almost, almost to a person about, about opportunities lost, about, about morale and creative energy and, and, and all of their own artistic and, uh, potential being kind of um, stymied, blocked, suppressed. So it's, it's the sense of uh, the kind of tidal wave of rage that has, that has, has accompanied these, these revelations has a lot to do with that. Publicists, particularly in um, the arts and entertainment field, wield a lot of power. How do you work with, around publicists on stories of this kind? Or is it possible to do? Every big story I've ever done like this, including some that were before six months ago, um, not necessarily about sexual misconduct, but something that was bound to piss off a network or a studio, I always went to them for comment ahead of time. I once did a story that was about who has created one-hour dramas in the 40-year history of HBO? And I compiled the stats on that, and I ran all of it by them. Like, and if you get on the wrong side of so-and-so's publicist or this studio or this group of people who are powerful, that can limit your entire company's access to those people for a long time. And I think it's actually really a credit to journalism that this many stories came out when the media industries are contracting a lot of companies are in trouble. These stories are incredibly, incredibly time-consuming and difficult, and they have to pass multiple reviews from lawyers. No one does them lightly. If you have the facts on your side, if your story is bulletproof, no, no publicist can necessarily, they can maybe spin it, but they can't take away from the power of the reporting that has been done in this arena. And, and publicists, showbiz publicists. I mean, let's be clear. 
they they wield power only to the degree you give them power as a journalist. Exactly. Yes, if your whole thing is, we've got to have Tom Cruise talk to me for this story, yeah, okay, then the publicist has power over you. But journalism doesn't depend on the 20 minutes with Tom Cruise or the access to the next uh, Ryan Seacrest project, you know? They're sometimes dismissively, I always thought, called write-arounds, but I think tough, good journalism can be done without... <laughs> the cooperation in the process of the of the subject's publicity people. I think that's so right. I remember I never need to talk to this person. I can always write about this person. I can do a write around any day. And, you know, especially in this age where stars are talking less and less, I think you um, you have to do the reporting. So many times you don't need the star. You can have people around them, and especially if you're doing something investigative, I think the most important thing is obviously to make sure you get that comment when you have everything together, to make sure that you, especially if it's really important, you, you can't just go ahead with the publicist and not immediately return a call for comment. You've got to give them time. And also be prepared for the backlash. Also, it can make for good journalism. I, I think of the time I was talking to... Sean Penn for Studio 360 about Hugo Chavez's uh, ascension and Sean Penn's adoration of him. And I asked him about that, and he was willing to talk. And suddenly the publicist <laughs> barges into the room and, and uh, attempts to stop it. Bring it. You know, that's great. We've had this wave of stories. Yeah. I mean, you know, I went through my list, and I could have had a whole other list and then a whole other list. What's the follow-up? What are the follow-up stories? Where do we as journalists go now? Follow-up is how is Hollywood changing? Is Hollywood going to allow Harvey, Harvey Weinstein's, the Kevin Spacey cases and all that? Is that going to be allowed? And are women going to get more of a forum? We need to see where Time's Up is going to go. So I think that for us as journalists, we need to hold people accountable. We need to see where this is going. I mean, I'm not going to say that if there's a major star or um, a major story that we're not going to do that oh so and so is accused of such and such but it's what is this major company doing to combat it i i was reading the other day sag aftra has um pushed to have no more um interviews or casting calls in hotel rooms which seems like a no-brainer but you know that's that's where things are going so i think that's what we as journalists need to. That's the next door. And and it's it's hard because it's it's. I think it's 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 always harder in terms of just organizing the resources and conceptualizing it and 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 selling it um, to your readers to report on systems and patterns and and structures. I mean, if you have like one person who has done terrible things, you know, there's a story, there's a, a narrative focus, there are, there are characters, there, there's a set of facts that, that you can set out. The harder work that's ahead of us is to dig into the whole infrastructure um, or the, the codes of behavior or the, the business patterns that made those things possible and allowed them to last. I think that's exactly right, that, that, that systemic anything is, becomes a what? kind of eyes glaze over hard thing to write about apart from look at this person who did this horrible thing. But in my little world of, of uh, radio, you know, and, and it's true of all journalism, you know, you can do your, you, you can essentially be very conscious when you are deciding, oh, which of these authors or musicians or performers or actors or directors are we going to do a 45 minute interview with? 
are too many of them white men? Well, yes, of course they are. And actually set up, you know, essentially a default facing up to that with each time there's a conversation. My guess would be that as far as industries go, that this one, the effect will be more widespread and permanent than, than other ones. Thank you all. Uh, thank you all. I'm sure this is a conversation that is going to go on and on, and who knows, we may all be back here next year talking um, about the same thing. But I hope this uh, provides some food for thought and will keep you thinking and talking and, in many cases, reporting about uh, these issues. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening, and you can subscribe to Studio 360 at iTunes or Overcast or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. 